0: Welcome to session four of my Tolkien course. Everything worked fine today, so I actually do have a live recording for you. Today we finished up the end of On Fairy Stories, and then we moved on to Mythopoeia, which we actually came admirably close to finishing. Tolkien's poem Mythopoeia doesn't get reprinted a lot, so I'll start off just reading it straight through so you can have it in your head, and then I'll start the class recording. Mythopoeia to one who said that myths were lies, and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. Philomythus to Misomythus You look at trees, and label them just so, for trees are trees, and growing is to grow. You walk the earth, and tread with solemn pace, one of the many minor globes of space. A star is a star, some matter in a ball, compelled to courses mathematical, amid the regimented, cold, inane, where destined atoms are each moment slain. At bidding of a will, to which we bend, and must, but only dimly apprehend, great processes march on, as time unrolls from dark beginnings to uncertain goals, and as on page or written without clue, with script or limning packed of various hue, an endless multitude of forms appear, some grim, some frail, some beautiful, some queer, each alien, except his kin from one, remote origo, Gnat, man, stone, and sun. God made the petreous rocks, the arboreal trees, Tellurian earth and stellar stars, And these homuncular men, who walk upon the ground, With nerves that tingle touched by light and sound. The movements of the sea, the wind in boughs, Green grass, the large slow oddity of cows, Thunder and lightning, birds that wheel and cry, Slime crawling up from mud to live and die. These each are duly registered, and print the brain's contortions with a separate dint. Yet trees are not trees, until so named and seen, And never were so named, till those had been whose speech's involuted breath unfurled, Faint echo and dim picture of the world, but neither record nor a photograph." being divination, judgment, and a laugh, response of those that felt a stir within, by deep monition movements that were kin to life and death of trees, of beasts, of stars, free captives undermining shadowy bars, digging the foreknown from experience, and panning the vein of spirit out of sense. Great powers they slowly brought out of themselves, and looking backward they beheld the elves that wrought on cunning forges in the mind, and light and dark on secret looms entwined. He sees no stars, who does not see them first, Of living silver made that sudden burst To flame like flowers beneath an ancient song, Whose very echo, after music, long has since pursued. There is no firmament, only a void, Unless a jeweled tent, myth-woven and elf-patterned, And no earth, unless the mother's womb, Whence all have birth. The heart of man is not compound of lies, But draws some wisdom from the only wise, And still recalls him, Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. His world dominion by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact, man sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues, and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, Though we dared to build gods and their houses out of dark and light, And sowed the seeds of dragons, Twas our right, used or misused. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. Yes, wish-fulfillment dreams we spin To cheat our timid hearts and ugly fact defeat. Whence came the wish, and whence the power to dream, Or some things fair and others ugly deem? All wishes are not idle, nor in vain fulfilment we devise, for pain is pain, not for itself to be desired, but ill, or else to strive, or to subdue the will, alike were graceless, and of evil this alone is deadly certain, evil is. Blessed are the timid hearts that evil hate, that quail in its shadow, and yet shut the gate, that seek no parley, and in guarded room, though small and bait, upon a clumsy loom weave tissues gilded by the far-off day, hoped and believed in under shadow's sway. Blessed are the men of Noah's race that build their little arcs, though frail and poorly filled, and steer through winds contrary towards a wraith, a rumor of a harbor guessed by faith. Blessed are the legend-makers with their rhyme of things not found within recorded time. It is not they that have forgot the night, or bid us flee to organized delight in lotus isles of economic bliss, for swearing souls to gain a Circe kiss, and counterfeit at that, machine-produced, bogus seduction of the twice-seduced. Such isles they saw afar, and ones more fair, and those that hear them yet may yet beware. They have seen death and ultimate defeat, and yet they would not in despair retreat, but oft to victory have turned the lyre, and kindled hearts with legendary fire, illuminating now, and dark hath been, with light of suns as yet by no man seen. I would that I might with the minstrels sing, and stir the unseen with a throbbing string. I would be with the mariners of the deep, that cut their slender planks on mountains steep, and voyage upon a vague and wandering quest, for some have passed beyond the fabled west. I would with the beleaguered fools be told, that keep an inner fastness where their gold, impure and scanty, yet they loyally bring to mint in image blurred of distant king, or in fantastic banners weave the sheen heraldic emblems of a lord unseen. I will not walk with your progressive apes, erect and sapient, Before them gapes the dark abyss to which their progress tends, if, by God's mercy, progress ever ends, and does not ceaselessly revolve the same, unfruitful course with changing of a name. I will not treat your dusty path and flat, denoting this and that by this and that, your world immutable wherein no part the little maker has with his maker's art. I bow not yet before the iron crown, nor cast my own small golden scepter down." In paradise perchance the eye may stray, from gazing upon everlasting day, to see the day illumined, and renew, from mirrored truth, the likeness of the true. Then looking on the blessed land, t'will see, that all is as it is, and yet made free. Salvation changes not, nor yet destroys, garden nor gardener, children nor their toys. Evil it will not see, for evil lies not in God's picture, but in crooked eyes, not in the source, but in malicious choice and not in sound but in the tuneless voice in paradise they look no more awry and though they make anew they make no lie be sure they still will make not being dead and poets shall have flames upon their head and harps whereon their faultless singers fall there each shall choose forever from the all
1: all right uh, we got as far as escape last time uh, not quite to consolation um One last thing I want to say about Escape, uh, which I kind of pointed to, but I I didn't really, uh, to my satisfaction anyway, get to finish, which was just a comment on the persistence with which Tolkien is obviously resistant to the entire development of the modern world, especially to the advance of technology and the process of industrialization. Um, And just the, the comment I want to make about that, there are some occasions on which I think Tolkien does tend to be just a little bit a little bit old-fashioned, a little bit simply resistant uh, to new things. He clearly just does not like new things and the the new innovations of technology. But I think it would be a very big mistake to read his discussions and his talking about that and come come away with it thinking only like, you know, here's this cranky old guy who is just like, doesn't like change and doesn't like, uh, you know, new, new technology and thing and has some kind of phobia about technology in the modern world. Um, Tolkien's objections to industrialization and to the advance in technology, uh, or as he would say, advance, as it's called, in technology is primarily moral and ethical. He, he resists, for instance, industrialization, for a couple different reasons. One is that, remember what we talked about before about how the, 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 the link that Tolkien suggests between the decline in the respect for fairies and the belief in fairies, the, the coincidence of that with the voyages of discovery and the kind of change in attitude that comes with the modern uh, so-called scientific age, that change in attitude between, of, of the relationship between us and the world, between us and nature, where now the... the to many, anyway, in the way that many articulate it, the, 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 the march of science is a march of, of conquest, right? That we, humanity, are going to conquer nature. We are, we are going to become the masters of nature uh, by exposing all of her secrets, by learning how everything works, so that hopefully, ideally, we'll be able to take it apart and put it back together better, right? I mean, that kind of mindset, he was deeply, deeply resistant to whether or not you are exerting your dominion over another human being that's very bad or whether you're just exerting that dominion over nature over 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 things like grass and plants by, by 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 paving things over and cutting down trees that is he believes a very dangerous a very questionable kind of outlook and he's always very skeptical about that and he's he's quick to go to the moral implications of that kind of thing of course we'll look at this later on, uh, the very clear central illustration of this tendency uh, in his works is with Saruman and Isengard. Uh, and that'll be a sort of, of course, a major theme when we look at that. But as I said, there were two. It's not just this general tendency towards domination that it shows in sort of the attitude of mankind. Also much more concrete and practical. As he says at one point in On Fairy Stories, the... Inevitable, dare he say inexorable, to use the word that uh, gets used at him about the progress of science. The inexorable product of industrialization is war. This is These factories that everyone is so happy about, these factories that everybody says, oh, look how we can make things better, faster, stronger all the time. Tolkien points, and consistently through his life, gosh, you notice how often those things tend to make bombs and guns and how, in fact, it's war and the desire to be able to kill more people more quickly and more efficiently that tends to drive advances, as it's called, in technology. And you know, he points to that as a, a very sobering piece of evidence that this whole impulse towards technological uh, and industrial advancement is diseased. At the core and so he's unashamedly resistant to it and finds as he says the escape of of of, of archaism of just of of past time when uh when as uh, he says famously in the opening chapter of the hobbit when there was less noise and more green right that's that in itself even in a completely non-fantastical setting to go back to a time when there were fewer cars and more horses, is itself an escape from the way that the modern world is going. Um, so I just want to point that there are other things that could be said about that. Um, but I just wanted to emphasize that because it is a consistent uh, impulse throughout his life. It's not impulse because it's not, it's, not, it's not an irrational one. Uh, a consistent objection that he makes against... Uh, progress he will never use the word progress without at least implicit quotation marks and sometimes explicit quotation marks uh, he is very skeptical about that now consolation the third of the three uses we've talked about recovery escape and now consolation what does he mean by consolation in what way does fantasy provide consolation to its readers I'm getting many. It was days and days ago that I read on Fairy Stories looks from people here right now. <laughs> Jordan. It's, um, it's, I was looking for a quote. It's, but the consolation of fairy tales is an aspect, um, another aspect from the imaginative satisfaction of ancient desires. It's the happy ending. Yes, yes, yes. Primarily the consolation of the happy ending. Uh, he invents a word. Because he says we don't have a word really to describe. Because happy ending is one thing, right? But to, to say happy ending doesn't really capture the thing that he's describing, right? Because it's more than just the fact that the plot resolves in a way in which everybody is more or less pleased, right? There's a specific moment. There's a specific turn that, 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 that he's... There's a specific dynamic which brings the joy that he describes, the consolation that he's getting at. And so the word that he descri- that he, that he uh, develops is anyone remember? U catastrophe, right? And Harry he just takes the word, the the existing word, which is from a Greek root, catastrophe, right? And he just in, inserts the prefix "u" in which means good or happy, right? Um, like you know, a sound which is euphonious is pleasant, pleasant sound, right? Um, so the u catastrophe is the happy catastrophe, right? The the joyful disaster. The sudden turn, just as, just as the word catastrophe describes you know, a, a, a sudden burst of something terrible happening, this is the reverse of that, right? So it has to be not just everybody kind of goes along and gets happier and happier and then everybody's happy at the end, right? But that, that sudden turn. What does he say we get from this? And here, he dis, he, this, is where, this is what leads him into his epilogue. What is the significance of this catastrophe? The grace that can never be counted on to recur. See, that's the thing. It's not just a sudden resolution. It has to be, to be the real catastrophe. it has to be out of nowhere. See, some people talk about, you know, a deus ex machina ending. Um, but of course, ironically, that phrase... God out of machines, right, uh, is drawn from exactly the kind of stage drama that he is resistant to in On Fairy Stories, right? When all of a sudden, you know, they, they, they start operating the pulleys behind stage and a deity drops uh, from, you know, from, from the rafters, makes everything good again, and then disappears, right? That's what, th- that, that, that sort of move at the end of uh, mediocre at best drama um, is what is being sort of criticized in the phrase deus ex machina, right? But what he's describing, well, well, it's still deus, right? Just less on the machina, but it's but it's exactly that kind of intervention, right? That kind of sudden grace. And when he when he uses the word grace, almost every time Tolkien uses the word grace, he is using that word in its theological sense, grace. Theologically, means a gift from God, an undeserved, unmerited gift that is given. Um, a eucatastrophe is always by grace, not somebody suddenly and unexpectedly getting what they deserve, but this sudden, unexpected, undeserved, miraculous turn.
0: Um, The word that I thought of when he was describing eucatastrophe was serendipity, Mm -hmm. sort of a pleasant coincidence. But
1: would he object to that because of the use of coincidence and not divine intervention? Um, Well, I don't know about object, but perhaps a eucatastrophe may appear to be serendipity. We will look at that theme, actually, um, in The Hobbit. That's uh, the... Grace, which looks like luck, is going to be uh, a, a motif throughout The Hobbit, finally emphasized in the, in the last page of the book. Um, yeah, sure, one may look like another. Now, you know, at root, in the, in the Christian theistic world, there's no such thing really as coincidence. There's no such thing really as chance. Boethius again. They may appear to be chance to us, Because we don't understand the causes. We don't know the big picture. We don't know why these two things have happened at the same time. So we call it coincidence. But God knows what he's doing. um, And has brought these things together for a purpose, even if we don't perceive it. Eucatastrophe, therefore, satisfies one of the deepest and most primal desires. He says it's the denial of a universal final defeat. That In the end, evil is not going to win. And he says it's a denial against the evidence. I mean, it's understandable to go through life and perceiving the world around you and your own life draw the conclusion things suck and generally suck. The good guys don't usually win. And we see evil prospering all over the place. It looks like those who try to do the right thing, those who are on the side of good, are fighting a losing battle. But this, these moments in these stories resist that universal final defeat and suggest that there is something else. And in this way, he says, a eucatastrophe, the happy ending of a fairy story, the consolation that that can bring us is a little glimpse of Evangelium. What does that word mean? Anyone? Anyone? What was it? Good news. news. Yes, good news. This is what uh, what the English word, which is an Old Anglo-Saxon word, gospel. Gold spell means good news. Um, good news, good speech, right? Um, and that's that's what those first four books of the New Testament are called. Um, it's not a title. Um, the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, um, Evangelium in Latin. Um, that's why the writers of the four Gospels uh, were traditionally called the evangelists, those who described the good news. Right? So he talks more explicitly about this in his, in his epilogue, that in this denial of universal final defeat, a fairy story, even a perfectly secular fairy story, does provide a glimpse of Evangelion, Uh a, a, a sort of shadow of the good news. In this way, Derek. Well, also I noticed um, that even though it can be sort of by grace, it's usually something the characters sort of make themselves. Like in the Finnegle, you know, it's the tree the guy was painting, but you know, it's his heaven. But see, there I, that I wouldn't say that. Well. We're not done leaf by no so guess. I, I don't want to say too much of it. But I would say the moment of catastrophe in that story is when he falls off his bicycle. That's the moment of eucatastrophe. Um, and that's not something that he did. Nor is it something that he deserved. Um, though you're right to say that it's, he has a role in what happens. But even that role itself is by grace. But that's... That's a good point, and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. You know, I want to pay attention. Whenever there is a moment of eucatastrophe in Tolkien's stories, it's going to be a really important moment uh, because he, you know, as you can see, he believes that this is a, this is a really important element uh, in fairy stories. So, so, so watch out for that. Uh, yeah, Jordan? Um, I remember reading a, a really passionate debate on the Internet about a topic like this, and I wanted to get you, your input on it. It was the, the, the aspect of hope was the topic. Time to ask is, in the scene in Return um, of the King when, when Theoden says, well, yeah, we're not going to win, but we're going to fight anyway, that's an appropriate example of this? Or no? Um, that itself is not an example of eucatastrophe, but the arrival of Aragorn uh, and the Corsairs at the Harland in the middle of the Battle of Pelennor Field, is one of the greatest examples of Eucatastrophe I know of. I've read those, I don't even, I completely lost track of how many times I've read The Lord of the Rings, and I never fail to get chills at the moment when Aragorn arrives. That is an amazing moment of Eucatastrophe. Aemir standing on the hill, surrounded by people prepared to sell his life, and everyone's going to die, and he sees uh, the ships, uh, it's just, we'll get there, you'll see. But it's amazing. Um, that's the moment of catastrophe. Okay. Hang on to the hope stuff. Um, I want to come back especially to that when we look at Frodo and Sam uh, and their journey to Mordor in book four and in book six. Um, that's where hope most forcibly comes in. And it's a really interesting question. There are times when Tolkien says things about hope which seem very counterintuitive, especially uh, from a Christian standpoint. Um, and, but I think it's really interesting what he's doing. With hope there, and how he's talking about it. So we'll come back to that. Um, but yeah, that the, the catastrophe is specifically the moment when, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, unpredictably, to the people who are involved in the situation, uh, that final defeat is is averted. Now, he talks in the epilogue, of course, about. Evangelio more how the christian story itself the incarnation of jesus and and his resurrection after his crucifixions crucifixion he only was crucified once are the ultimate examples (laughs) thinking of examples plural and getting ahead of myself here are the ultimate examples of eucatastrophe you know he says the incarnation was the eucatastrophe was the eucatastrophe of all of history Uh, and the resurrection was the eucatastrophe of the story of, 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 of the incarnation, and that the Christian story, therefore, both begins and ends in joy. What I want to emphasize here is the way that he turns this, and this will launch us into Mythopoeia, because this is the idea that's really at the heart of Mythopoeia, and that is, he says at the very end, the Evangelium, This this idea of eucatastrophe applies not just to the reader. When you read a fairy story and receive the benefit of consolation from the experience of that eucatastrophe, artists themselves are involved in that as well. That the greatest and most unexpected grace shown is not that we are given glimpses of truth, given glimpses of Transcendent truth through stories, but that we are given by grace the ability to deliver those glimpses and to transmit those glimpses to other people. And that our sub creations as humans can become part of God's creation itself. Um, that we can, they become effoliations, he says, using an exceptionally obscure word. To effoliate is to unfold the leaf. We effoliate a leaf on the tree of tales. Remember what I said before about the tree of when we are talking about the tree of tales and the implication of that metaphor, it's that you know, the story exists outside you. It's part of this large, connected, organic thing which is beyond any individual person. When you're writing a story, it's not really coming from you. It's a leaf on the tree of tales that you're describing. And we'll come back to that a lot in Leaf by Niggle, but but of course the, the complementary. Emphasis to that is, no, it doesn't come from you, but it wouldn't happen without you. You are still the one who unfolds that leaf. You play an actual role in God's creation itself. If you were not, if you did not exercise your subcreative powers, God's creation would be different. That we are not just window dressing on creation. That God, through grace, gives us a part in what he's doing in creation. He only just kind of points at that at the end of the epilogue of On Fairy Stories. As I say in Mythopoeia is where he comes back to that and talks about that a good deal more. So let's do that with that seamless transition. Uh, Mythopoeia, as I explained before is addressed to, to one who said that myths were lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. This is, as I said, C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis was convinced after this and never talked about myths quite the same way again. Um, C.S. Lewis started off this, this is This poem came from... Uh, you know, this a famous conversation that Tolkien and Lewis had when they were out on, on an evening walk one day with their friend Hugo Dyson. And Lewis, was, you know, Lewis, had, Lewis had a profound respect for myths and believed that you know, they were stories that were really powerful, that were really evocative, but at the end of the day, they're not true. They're lies. I mean, they're made up stories. And so therefore, the stories themselves are worthless. Maybe they evoke something that's, that's important, but the stories themselves are worthless. And Tolkien insisted, no, no, it's not just that they're not worthless, they're not lies. Myths are true. And he writes, he explains uh, his ideas on this to Lewis that evening and he writes this poem after that. Uh, Now, let me start off with... Reading you a little bit from this is from uh, Humphrey Carpenter's book, The Inklings. Humphrey Carpenter is the uh, author of the authorized biography of Tolkien, uh, and he also wrote this book, The Inklings, which gives some. Biographical information on on all the members of, of of the Inklings, that group of people who sat around in uh, in, in the Eagle and Child, also known as the Burden Baby, um, uh, drinking beer and talking about poetry and mythology in Oxford uh, for several years. Tolkien, Lewis, um, and, and and several others: uh, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield. Um, this is his when he's describing this conversation they have between the two of them. Um, Tolkien said, according to Carpenter, Tolkien says, "...man is not ultimately a liar. He may pervert his thoughts into lies, but he comes from God, and it is from God that he draws his ultimate ideals." Lewis agreed. He had indeed accepted something like this notion for many years. Therefore, Tolkien continued, "...not merely the abstract thoughts of man, but also his imaginative inventions must originate with God and must in consequence reflect something of eternal truth." In making a myth, in practicing mythopoeia—that's what the word means—to to make myths, and and peopling the world with elves and dragons and goblins, a storyteller or subcreator, as Tolkien like to call such a person, is actually fulfilling God's purpose and reflecting a splintered fragment of the true light. Pagan myths are therefore never just lies; there is always something of the truth in them. Look at where he starts this poem. He begins the poem with a discussion of our relationship with creation. You walk the earth and tread with solemn pace one of the many minor globes of space. A star is a star, some matter in a ball, compelled to courses mathematical, amid the regimented cold inane where destined atoms are each moment slain. In this first stanza, of course, one of the things that he emphasizes, this is a very modern view of our planet and of space and of our relationship to our planet and how our planet is conceived according to modern scientific theories. Um, It's a cold outlook. He describes, as he moves on, our relationship to all of the other things in the world around us. Everything else is alien to us. Endless multitude of forms appear, some grim, some frail, some beautiful, some queer. Each alien except as kin from one remote origo, Nat, man, stone, and sun. All of these things are alien to us. We all have one thing in common, which is that we all came from the same place. But we're all separate. We're all different. We are isolated in this way from all these other things. And of course, implicit in this also is a reminder, we're just one of those things, right? We're homuncular man wandering around amidst the rocks and stars and trees and everything else. But... What in these first 20 lines does he emphasize about our relationship with things? How is our relationship different? Look where he starts the first couple lines. Yeah. Oh,
0: we name them.
1: We name things. We name things. We're namers. And he emphasizes the fact that these are names that we've given them. You know, when he says, when he talks about petrious rocks and arboreal trees and stellar stars and Tellurian earth, the Deliberate redundancy there is to draw attention to the fact that these are just names that we've given them, right? We're namers. We, unlike the rest of creation, so far as we know, perceives creation and thinks about it. These homuncular men who walk upon the ground with nerves that tingle, touched by light and sound, the movements of the sea, the wind in boughs, green grass, the large slow oddity of cows, Thunder and lightning, birds that wheel and cry, slime crawling up from mud to live and die. These each are duly registered and print the brain's contortions with a separate dint. We perceive these things as being separate from ourselves. We name them. They each make a separate impression upon our minds. We categorize them. We think about them. We invest them in this sense with meaning, with being a kind of being they wouldn't have had on their own because they're not self-aware. But we are aware. And so we name them and think about them and describe their qualities. And when we do that, we start doing something else. Line 29. Yet trees are not trees until so named and seen and never were so named till those had been whose speeches involuted breath unfurled faint echo and dim picture of the world. But neither record nor a photograph, being divination, judgment, and a laugh, response of those that felt a stir within by deep munition, movements that were kin to life and death of trees, of beasts, of stars, free captives undermining shadowy bars, digging the foreknown from experience, and panning the vein of spirit out of sense. Think about that metaphor. What does that mean, panning the vein of spirit out of sense? You know what comparison he's making? What metaphor is he drawing? What should we be picturing, Chantel? Uh, he's talking about looking for gold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like you would pan a vein of gold out of a stream bed, right? Except instead of gold and and, and gravel, what is it? Spirit and sense. That is sense in the, in the sense of sense perceptions, Right? Sense perceptions are where we begin. We started with the observation. Hey, look, there's a tree. Hey, look, there's a rock. Hey, look, there's a cow, right? But then, as we explore and examine and consider those sense perceptions, we, we come to something else. We end up with not just the gravel of our sense perceptions, but, but this gold of spiritual perceptions. We begin, as we think about them, as we perceive them, to understand a spiritual nature, a spiritual quality to them, or we place it upon them. To name something is to do something to a thing, right? It has an effect. It changes it. A mythical understanding gives names and meaning to things. Look what he goes on to say, you see. He sees no stars, who does not see them first of of living silver, made that sudden burst to flame like flowers beneath an ancient song, whose very echo, after music, long has since pursued. There is no firmament, only a void, unless a jeweled tent, myth-woven and elf-patterned, and no earth, unless the mother's womb, whence all have birth. See what he means by that? To talk about the earth in the way that we talk about the earth requires a mythical understanding. And it is only through, if we don't think mythically, if our thoughts are not informed by myth, if we haven't panned the vein of spirit out of sense, we wouldn't talk about the earth. We wouldn't have Earth Day. It would just be nothing but the thing we walk on, right? The thing which happens to be holding us up. The sky wouldn't be the heavens, wouldn't be evocative in any way. It would be just that void up there. Right? The fact that anything has significance to us, has identity, has a name, in more than a purely accidental sense, is mythology. Is, 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 is giving a mythological significance to it. Once you have some kind of mythological understanding, Once you begin to see the sky above you as a jeweled tent, myth-woven and elf-patterned, once you begin to see stars as living silver that burst into flame like flowers with the music of creation, once you begin to think of the earth as the womb from which all living things come, then you begin to have some sense of identity, some understanding of those things in themselves. Otherwise, they're just... It's just stuff. The ground you walk on. Where do these myths come from? Where do these spiritual ideas that we attach to these things come from? Is just our own arbitrary associations. Marta. Um, What I'm trying to get from this is that because we've given it a name, we've given it a meaning. It's the same thing with like symbols and that kind
0: of idea. And if we've given it this meaning, it must have meaning in some way. It must, even though that's hard to explain, it must have meaning because we've given it, or we wouldn't give it
1: at all. Right, exactly. And not only that, but as both Tolkien and Lewis would say, when you look around and you look at the different myths of different societies all around the world, and you notice, gosh, you know, there's some... There's a lot of, agree- there's some major obvious trends of how people tend to talk about the earth and, and the sky and things, that, that, which would seem, therefore, to confirm. We're not just pulling this out of nowhere. This is not just a random and individual association. There is something there that's being perceived. As Tolkien says in the poem, the heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise and still recalls him. Because we are made in God's image and still have some knowledge of God within us in our soul, in the nature of our souls, because we were made in his image. Therefore, we all have this sense. It's clouded and confused. Not everybody thinks exactly the same way about things or feels the same way about things. But we we all have that sense. We all have that perception. And we share that perception. Um, that's the source of this kind of mythological understanding. Um, We may be, as he said, we may be estranged from God. Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost, nor wholly changed. Uh, In what sense are are we estranged from the wise? Right back to Christian theology. Yeah. Through sin. Yes. Through original sin. There is this gap between between humans and, and God. We have distanced ourselves from God. But although we are disgraced, although we have distanced ourselves from grace, although we are estranged from God, we are not either wholly lost nor wholly changed. We still have the image of God within us. It's messed up. We are messed up, but not wholly lost, not wholly changed. Many of you have taken foundations, and others of you will remember this anyway, What's Adam's job in the Garden of Eden. He tends to the plants. What does he do? He names things. Adam is a namer. That's his job. God brings before him all the beasts of the field and he names each one what it is. He perceives it, recognizes its nature, and gives it its name. He is also ruler. Man and woman are given dominion over everything in the world. This is what he's alluding, what Tolkien is alluding to when he says, you know, disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. And here he's alluding both to that authority, but also to the naming. Remember, he started off with that. We name stuff. We can't help it. It's who we are. It's what we do. Because although we're changed and our relationship with God has changed, we're still made in God's image like Adam was. So just as he was a namer, so are we. We are created to be sub-creators. We are transmitters and refractors of God's light. Look at that passage. It's a very important one. Man, sub-creator, line 61. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. What is the relationship between God's creative act and human subcreative act that Tolkien is describing there. You see what he's suggesting about the relationship between those two things, between God's creation and our subcreation? What does he say here with his light metaphor?
0: Um, well, the single way of light would be God and the perfection and the yes. creator. And then the, um, the refracted light of the subcreator is kind of like our own, um, what we use divine inspiration kind of to. Um, to living shapes and from mind to mind using what you know this the actual light kind of this inspiration and through, through that grace we have we're able to create our with separation
1: yes yes good good exactly we are like crystals right which refract the light that god sends now one thing of course you see is that god is the only source of light we don't have any light of our own we, you, know, you put a crystal in the dark, it's not going to be very pretty. It's not going to do anything, right? It requires light. It doesn't generate light. It requires light. So all of it comes from God, but, but what happens to it? What happens to it is something different than would have happened if the crystals weren't there. We, as crystals, create colors. We refract God's light. We can't ever contain or transmit all of God's light in its purity. We're only limited. We only get a pretty narrow wavelength of light that each one of us can refract. But as a result of that refraction, that color is brought into the world. Your particular shade of blue or yellow or whatever wavelength you happen to be wouldn't be in the world if it weren't shining through you. The result is the dazzle of beautiful color the colorful picture that god wanted made but it's through the crystals that he makes it you see it's an amazing concept and again, this you see where this is more on what i was describing about the affoliation before that of course human subcreation is 100% derivative of god's creative power but matters. It accomplishes something. It means something. Again, your, your color of light wouldn't be there if you didn't generate it. Because that's how God has made us. He made us in His image. He is a creator. We are sub-creators. We make still by the law in which we are made, He says. Not only, therefore, is it appropriate As a human, as a Christian, to be a sub creator, it's darn near mandatory, in fact. Not to sub create at all is not to transmit God's light. I mean, it's, he almost goes to the opposite extreme of the potential criticism that could be made here. The criticism, of course, that he's responding to is well, is it appropriate? For us to be creative, for us to do creative things. And goodness knows there have been lots of times over the course of Christian history when people have said, have, have been really uncomfortable with fiction. Why should, shouldn't we just be teaching truth to each other? Shouldn't we be just you know, doing, uh, you know, scriptural exegesis, right? Why tell a story which only gets at the, tr- even if it's getting at the truth, that gets at the truth indirectly when you could just be just, just preaching instead, which is more direct and more pure form of transmission of truth. This was a, a question that people asked for a long time. Is it even appropriate? And Tolkien says, well, not only is it appropriate, is it okay? It's, it's, it's darn near inevitable. That is the essence of mythopoeia, of myth-making. To be transmitting the truth, the refracted truth. It's not the complete truth. It's not the perfect image. You don't get the white light. We're we're none of us transparent windows. But to transmit a fragment of that light. Jordan? Um, Some of the language in here evokes a scene from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, you're going to talk about Saruman, right? Yeah. We'll get there. Wait for it. Wait for it. It's an excellent question. If you know the Lord of the Rings, it's hard not to think of Gandalf and Saruman's conversation here when talking about refracted light. Wait for it. Wait for it. We'll come back to it. If I don't mention this poem when we get there, make sure to bring it up because I do want to talk about that. But not when only a percentage of the people in the room will know what we're talking about. Let's, let's, but, but that's an excellent question, Jordan, nevertheless. Now, he goes on after this. this you know, at this point, through, through line 70, he's laid out the basic theory, the basic theology. Then in line 71, he moves to application. So you think that writing myths, telling fairy stories, writing fantasy, is escapist, is just wish fulfillment? Heck yeah, it's wish fulfillment. (laughs) Absolutely. And what's wrong with that? Tolkien asks. Where does the wish come from? Is fulfilling it such a bad thing? Is dreaming of its fulfillment such a bad thing? You know, I mean, he says, Whence came the wish, and whence the power to dream, or some things fair, and others ugly deem? If we have some sense of the existence of beauty, where does that sense come from? And why shouldn't we act upon it? If you believe that, (laughs) if you can perceive that some things are good and some things are evil... What's wrong in desiring the good? And if you happen to be surrounded by evil, what's wrong with wishing that there were good instead? That is bad? How is that bad? This is escapist? This is fugitive? This is denying reality? No, no, not really. Um, And and he he goes on to emphasize in in that same stanza... Pain is pain, not for itself to be desired, but ill, or else to strive to, or to subdue the will alike were graceless, and of evil this alone is deadly certain. Evil is. The wish for good, the wish for beauty, when you are surrounded by evil and by ugliness, is not a denial of reality. It's an affirmation of reality. It's because you know that the evil is really around you that you want good. Of course. Of course. Here, these are the defensive moves. He will go on offense a little bit later on, right? Just because, okay, yes, life is pain. Life is suffering. That means the only way to respond to it is to revel in that, is to talk about nothing else, is to reconcile ourselves to evil and to pain and to suffering. That doesn't make any sense. It's not the only way to recognize the reality of the world around us. This is one of the things, that, one of the ways in which Tolkien differed from so many post World War I poets. You can read a lot of poetry uh, written uh, you know, in, this, in these decades, uh, you know, in the early decades of the 20th century, which emphasize the pain, the horror, the suffering, confronting that reality. We must face facts. We must not live in this, this idealistic dream world. That's not how things really are. Reality is you know, somebody's guts sprayed out against the wall when they've been you know, blown away with a machine gun. That is reality and we need to face it. And there's a lot of, a lot of poetry, a lot of thinkers who talked like that in the first part of the 20th century. And Tolkien says, why? Yes, that's true. Yes, that happens. Yes, that is in reality. That's, that's why we want to talk about other things in the affirmation of that. Um, Far from the flight of the deserter, uh, this desire to escape from that evil reality is noble. And he does his little beatitudes, right? Blessed are the timid hearts that evil hate, that quail in its shadow and yet shut the gate. Blessed are those who recognize evil and the shadow around them, but resist it, but don't acquiesce to it, that don't go along with it and say it's okay. That's a good thing. Blessed are the men of Noah's race that build their little arcs, though frail and poorly filled, and steer through winds contrary towards a wraith, a rumor of a harbor guessed by faith. Blessed are those who do seek to escape, who do want to escape the world. And this this metaphor, the metaphor of the modern world as the flood is a is a fantastic one. Blessed are the legend makers with their rhyme of things not found within recorded time. And here he shifts to the offense. It is not they that have forgot the night, or bid us flee to organized delight in lotus aisles of economic bliss, forswearing souls to gain a Circe kiss, and counterfeit at that machine-produced, bogus seduction of the twice-seduced. love that line. You see what he's talking about here? Who are the real escapists? Who are the people who are really denying reality? Or rather, let me put the question a different way. What does a person who denies reality in the way he's describing tell you? What do they say? Darren?
0: He's, trying, he's talking about people who are like changing reality. That in itself is escaping reality because trying to change it to better, to luxurious. Yes. For
1: you, yes. Yes. Yes, and not only that, but you're fooling yourself, of course. Yes, it's the people who say, ah, through the, through the progress of science and the development of technology, we shall make the world into a grand and beautiful place. Right? Ah, no more shall there be pain and suffering. No, we will reform society. We shall create a utopia on earth through our social and political reform and through our technological advance, and there will be no more hunger and there will be... Those are the people who are escapists, he says. Those are the people who are denying the reality of evil and pain who are trying to get us to live on lotus isles to forget our home. Lotus isles of economic bliss to be seduced by machine-generated kisses uh, of this robotic Circe. It's the legend makers, he says, who who are doing the opposite of uh, the opposite of escapism. Line 101. They have seen death and ultimate defeat, and yet they would not in despair retreat, but off to victory have turned the lyre and kindled hearts with legendary fire, illuminating now and dark hath been with light of suns as yet by no man seen. The legend makers are the ones who are fighting against evil, not denying it. And then he, in the next stanza, declares his... Uh, affiliation with all three of these, right? I would that I might with a minstrel sing. I'm going to align myself with the legend makers. I would be with the mariners of the deep. I'm going to be like a Noah with my own little ark. I would with the beleaguered fools be told that keeps an inner fastness, right? One of those timid hearts that recognizes the shadow but resists it. Fantasy is taking the gold that you've been given, like the... Spirit that has been panned out of sense before, right? He sort of comes back now to that gold metaphor. You've been given some gold. You take your little modest supply of gold and you weave it into a, ban- a fantastical banner, into the banner of the king. I'm going to take my little gold and I'm going to forge it. Yet, loyal- yet they loyally bring to mint an image blurred of distant king or in fantastic banners wave the sheen heraldic emblems of a lord unseen. Fantasy is weaving the gold, the natural gifts of man, into coins which bear the king's face, into banners which declare the king's heraldry. That's the form of resistance against evil. That is the true escape, not escapism, but escape beginning of next time we'll look very quickly at his final two visions his last two stanzas give one that is sort of his final discussion of the modern world and then his vision of the paradisical world and what that looks like and what sub-creation has to do with that and then leaf by niggle leaf by niggle is a short story in which he illustrates many of the principles that he describes in on fairy stories in fictional form
0: it is much fun see you on wednesday Okay, for class on Wednesday, we'll be reading Leaf by Niggle up to the end of the discussion that Niggle overhears between the two voices while he is in the workhouse. The passage ends with the first voice saying, Let him go on to the next stage, tomorrow if you like. Thanks for joining us, and Godspeed.